www.ncf.org. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. In Maine and elsewhere, we're seeing a growing interest on the part of local farmers and consumers to establish face-to-face relationships through farmers markets, community-supported agriculture, and farm stands. This is in contrast to the corporatization of our food system at the national and international levels, with food being grown industrial style, where climate and labor costs benefit the profit margins, and those, that food is shipped to consumers wherever they live. No connections there between those who grow the food and those who eat it. These two trends have found an interesting intersection in the Blue Hill Peninsula in the last several months, resulting in calls for local food ordinances passed at the town level that proponents say would assure the ability of local farmers and local consumers to develop mutually beneficial relationships. On this morning's program, we'll learn more about the local food ordinance proposals, along with some practical advice on how both producers and consumers can make sure that locally prepared foods are safe for all. Our guests are Heather Retberg of Quills End Farm in Penobscot, Ruth Sullivan of the Halcyon Grange, and Jason Bolton, a food safety educator with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Later in the program, we'll hear from State Representative Walter Cumiega of Deer Isle, who's proposed state legislation addressing some of these topics. So I'm glad to welcome Heather Retberg, Ruth Sullivan, and Jason Bolton um, to our studios here. First, we'll start with Heather. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and Quills End Farm. Well, um, my husband and I operate Quills End Farm in Penobscot. It's a 100-acre farm. It's uh, pasture-based, meaning that we raise most of our animals um, seasonally in terms of harvesting them, that we're really paying attention to the health of the soil and using the animals to help us um, increase the fertility of the land. Our farm had been abandoned for about 30 years, and um, uh, soils had grown acidic, barns had fallen into the ground, so we're really starting from scratch in, mm-hmm. in terms of that. Um, but we raise uh, grass-fed beef and lamb, uh, pastured pork, um, eggs, and then we have uh, four dairy cows, which my husband milks by hand, and I have two dairy goats, which I also milk by hand. Mm. And what would you be doing if you weren't here at the radio station this morning? Mm, I'd be home um, educating my children. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Hi, guys. So, two children? I have three. Three, okay. And yeah. so they're homeschooled, so um, part of your work is to is to bring them up. And do you use the farm as an educational tool or, or a setting? Yeah, and um, it's certainly, um, when we came to the decision to homeschool, we were living right next door to an elementary school mm. and, um, and raising animals and had this kind of contrast of seeing the kids on the playground and our own children playing in the stream. Mm. And um, sort of that image is, is very much what... F- farming and homeschooling work together in, in such mm-hmm. wonderful ways. And, and that was really, yeah, a formative part of why it made sense to homeschool because we, 
we farm. Great. Ruth Sullivan, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the Grange. And and maybe we'll um, uh, keep you on for just a minute and talk about the history of the Grange, because I think it's really a fascinating story. Sure. Hi, Uh, my name is Ruth Sullivan, and I live in Blue Hill. Uh, I came to this area also as a farmer, and our farm was in North Blue Hill, about a quarter of a mile from our Grange building. And we um, went to one of our local farms to buy uh, some milk and butter. And uh, Flossie Howard came out with a loaf of freshly baked bread and asked me if I'd like a loaf of bread. And by the way, would I like to come to a Grange meeting? (laughs) Very effective. (laughs) And she made it quite clear that she would not take no for an answer. Uh So um, my... uh, husband, my then husband and I went to our first Grange meeting and we discovered uh, an institution that had been around for over a hundred years and was a quarter of a mile from our farm and was a way for our community members to get together and uh, help each other. Mm. And that really attracted us and we became members and Um, are really excited because our membership is now growing. We're beginning to attract uh, new farmers in the area. Um, So I'm no longer on the farm, but I am uh, an officer Mm. uh, in the Halcyon Grange, and it's the Halcyon Grange of North Blue Hill, for those that don't know. Um, We're right, we're four and a half miles outside of of the village of Blue Hill. Great. We'll come back to the to the Grange because um, the Grange has long uh, taken uh, issue, uh, policy issues and, and looked at um, policies and, and um, supporting um, folks who live on farms. So we'll come back to that. Wonderful. Jason Bolton, tell us a little bit about your work as a food safety educator and how you got involved, how you got interested in this topic. Well, my, uh, my background is in food science. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I did my undergraduate in food science from the University of Maine. Uh, my master's in food science and actually continuing on to do my PhD in mm. food science. I'm about six months away from graduating, so that's <laughs> Great. exciting Great. and also a relief. Uh-huh. Um, but I guess I started the position about a year and a half ago, and uh, it's basically a position that hasn't been held for about eight years. So the Department of Ag and other institutions have been trying to uh, offer as much programming when it deals to, with food safety. So the programming I offer is basically for companies that want to get started up who need the basic background for sanitation and starting a food company. Um, and that could be small individual consumers or it could be large companies. So mm. I kind of work throughout the, the whole state. Mm. One day it could be a vegetable processor and the next day meat processing or, or lobster mm-hmm. uh, or grain or anything like that. So it's whatever is processed in the state. Right. And um, it sounds like you've been on this path for a while. Do you, do you remember any um, early experience that said, I wanna, I'm want i interested in food and, and, and the science of food? Sure. Uh, you know, it was when I guess it was the youth of the Food Network that kind of, um, I guess, started this whole, I, I would call it an obsession when it comes down to it, when you spend <laughs> 10 years on something, um, it becomes okay. an obsession. Yep. But uh, yeah, the Food Network was a big one. And then um, looking at different career options and, and job possibilities and stuff, um, this was really the correct option for me, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. obvious one. Great, great. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, what led Heather, you, and some and peers and colleagues to think about um, a local food ordinance. And so give us some, some background. Sure. Um, 
Well, what happened is that we had, uh, my husband and I had been farming for 12 years, and um, all the while he had been working as a carpenter to help um, support right. the farming. And um, we had been working in the direction of having a dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we got to the point where he um, made the leap from carpentry to full-time farming. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we wanted to get a license for our retail farm store because we would be selling more just directly from the farm. So that kind of put us in the loop of, of um, regulations for the first time. Um, and everything was fine, um, but we got a visit from the inspector at the end of that first licensed um, growing season um, that told us that the way that we had butchered our chickens wasn't a legitimate legal option. Um, and we had done it at a, a farming friend's facility that was state inspected but federally regulated. Um, and those federal regulations allowed for an exemption to do what we did, but those that particular exemption is not one that has ever been granted, according to what we found out later from um, the department. Um, and then uh, several weeks after he told us that the way we were butchering chickens wasn't a legitimate option, he came back and had noticed that people were also buying milk from the farm store and that um, those rules were also going to be looked at differently and delivered us a letter that said effectively we could no longer sell milk directly to our customers unless we became licensed milk distributors. Um, Five years prior, we had called uh, the Dairy Inspection Services and asked um, what we would need to do before we built a barn or bought cows to make sure that when we were Mm -hmm. operating on just the farm income that we um, we would not have any surprises that would really damage damage the farm business. So at that time, the Dairy Inspection Services told us that as long as we were selling directly um, from the farm and not advertising, that um, no license was required and that further there were only two inspectors. And if we only had a couple of cows, they would never come down our driveway. Um, but that, that was the legal way to operate. So um, what happened was the Dairy Inspection Services got moved because of budget cuts under the Quality Assurance and Regulation Division of the Department of Agriculture, and that director um, was looking at the law differently. Mm -hmm. So that just prompted kind of the questioning process Mm -hmm. and why um, was it really possible for laws to be reinterpreted that um, could effectively take out a whole growing sector of farming and also an existing um, sector. We'd also gotten our milk from... Um, the farm down the road, um, and he's he's 84 now. Um, mm. He certainly wouldn't comply with regulations because he's milking on a wooden barn floor. And, and um, anyway, so that it, it prompted that whole questioning process about how these rules were being made and who was making the decisions. Mm-hmm. And the more we interacted with the department, the more it became clear that the decision-making was going right up to the federal level very um, quickly. Um, and in the terms of meat, um, the USDA was requiring the Department of Agriculture, the Quality Assurance and Regulation Division, to make rules that were equal to or greater than their own. And if they did not do that, they would lose um, partial funding for the state's meat inspection program. Um, that, when we went through the series of hearings in Augusta, that just struck us as very, very wrong. That mm-hmm. when we were selling food in our community, um, that our um, Department of Agriculture was basically being used as an agent for a federal um, system of regulation that where we weren't selling across state lines really shouldn't come Mm. into play Mm. in local agriculture. So um, because we went through this hearing process and talked to the the Committee on Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry, um, and because we talked to the department and both had essentially told us that their hands were tied because of funding, um, we felt that going to our communities, which is where we are growing food, which is where people still understand farming, that that was where we also have 
the constitutional rights to govern our food, mm. and that that was the place where, where we should ask people um, to do it. Mm -hmm. And in both um, Penobscot now and in um, Sedgwick, with the first town on March 5th, that's exactly what the towns have voted to do. So tell us a little bit about the, the ordinance themselves. Um, what, what does the ordinance say? Well, essentially what it says is that um, the federal regulations and state regulations, as, as the system is now set up, are um, constitute a usurpation of people's right to choose the foods that they wish to eat, the foods that they wish to grow, the foods that they wish to buy. And um, by exempting face-to-face -face sales between um, any time it's community food that's being grown by the community or prepared in the community for the community, that those are foods that people within the community have the right to govern. So it exempts face-to-face um, -face sales from a farmer or a home food producer to a patron. And it also exempts um, community suppers, church suppers, grange functions, any kind of community social event where food is being prepared in a home kitchen and served to the public. Okay. Um, Ruth, how did you, you first hear about um, this, this as, a, as a Grange member? Well, uh, let's see. I heard about this from two different angles. Um, I heard about it personally because um, I am a customer of Phil and Heather, mm -hmm. and I heard from them that um, they were worried about their ability to sell raw milk. And we, there were some changes made to the way we, <clears throat> the way we purchased that milk. We signed contracts, mm -hmm. and um, so I began to talk with Heather about what was prompting this. Um, and then at the same time, we began to hear that across the country there were some instances of church suppers. Um, and fundraisers getting closed down because the foods were being prepared in home kitchens. Mm -hmm. And that prompted some conversations at the Grange um, because we've, as, a, as an organization, we've been around since 1898. And one of the things that we do is put on baked bean suppers mm -hmm. um, to fundraise for people in our community when they have no insurance, when they have medical bills. Unfortunately, more and more people are getting sick with h horrifying um, problems that are extremely expensive. And so we've always, at the Grange, tried to help our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we do that is by having baked bean and casserole suppers. And we raise thousands and thousands of dollars every year that way. So we were very concerned that that this trend around the country was going to start impacting us. And so uh, we brought uh, a resolution to our Halcyon Grange of North Blue Hill, and we voted on it. And that resolution, uh, one of the things that it does is supports the um, local food and community self-governance ordinance that is going to be on the Blue Hill town um, warrant at town meeting on April 2nd. Okay. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of the Grange. You know, that would be a good kind of segue to talk about this this um, old organization, a mature organization, um, that has always been looking at these kinds of issues. Sure. Uh, well, nationally, Grange was founded around 1867. It was after the Civil War, and it was a time when farmers were feeling very marginalized across the country. 
and there were issues mounting with um, railroads and banking regulations, and farmers were beginning to feel that they were getting the short end of the stick. So Grange was really founded as a progressive populist organization to give a voice to farmers and rural citizens across the country. Um, it was a way for them to educate themselves, and it was a way for them to band together and work cooperatively. Um, there was uh, cooperative insurance purchasing, cooperative um, equipment purchasing. There used to be Grange stores mm. um, on every corner in the Grange halls. Um, in Maine, our Grange started, uh, the state Grange started around 1874, and then our Halcyon Grange was organized in 1898. Um, and I have a lovely quote here that I'd like to read um, from a book that was written in 1949. It is, let's see, it is um, written by C.M. Gardner. It was published in 1949, and it says, the Grange has sought to build and develop the best in men and women and to make them not only better farmers, but part of a bigger and stronger community life. The Republic is only as strong as the communities composing it. And again, the National Grange has always taken a strong stand against corporations or large-scale farming, emphasizing the fact that American prosperity has been built on the thrift and the energy of the individual farmer, the backbone of the rural community. Mm. And it's very telling to me that in 1949, these issues were uh, at the forefront, and I really find that they're at the forefront again today. Mm. And in fact, the Grange and Cooperative Extension, which is the organization that Jason and I represent, um, my my um, sense is that um, without the Grange, Cooperative Extension would not have had a, an easy way in because this was mm. the f a federal government <laughs> kind of um, saying, we want to um, be involved in education at the local level. Without the Grange and similar organizations, the Farm Bureau a little bit later, um, we wouldn't have had those entrees into getting good education, good information out to people. So there was a real partnership in the early days. I think um, uh, perhaps extension um, lost a path for a while as, as industrial agriculture kind of took, took, took shape and forgot that the, the, the roots that the Grange had were really the same roots as the as cooperative extension had. So it's great to see um, that history kind of revive because as a society we forget these things unless people like Ruth kind of bring them out and, and, and read the history to us. So that's really helpful. Um, Heather, um, I'll just r remind listeners that they're listening to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about a local food ordinance for the Blue Hill Peninsula and perhaps beyond. Our guests in the studio are Heather Retberg of Quills End Farm in Penobscot, Ruth Sullivan of the Halcyon Grange of North Blue Hill, and Jason Bolton, the food safety educator with Cooperative Extension. Um, Heather, as you've um, kind of took your case and said, well, maybe we should involve some others. What, what's been the reaction of other farmers and, and consumers? Yeah, well, all along the way, I, I have been absolutely astonished at how at just the right moment when we've kind of come to the end of our rope or the end of our skill set or the end of our time, <laughs> people come down the driveway and say, I 
am so passionate about this issue. How can I help? Mm. And so we've been really blessed with a group of people that um, at first primarily were um, patrons of our farm that were worried about not only the future of our farm, but if it meant that our farm, these things were happening, these things are also happening to other farms across the state and probably across the country. And so everyone was getting very concerned about local food systems as they're growing and rebuilding regional food supplies this could threaten all of it. So um, customers have really come to us and um, other farmers too, um, really digging out information about what's happening around the country, doing legal research to find out what do the laws really say, what rights do we really have, um, all those issues. And so it's we've really just had a tremendous outpouring of support and an incredibly positive response. Mm. So, um, and, and then you've you've kind of crafted the the ordinance themselves. What kind of help did you get in crafting the ordinance? Did you get some Grange help or some 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 other help to to kind of put the la- the language down? Well, it really did happen at a farmhouse kitchen table. Uh huh. Um, we had one of the people that came to our side very early on was a woman named Larissa Kerlick. She is um, a graduate student in um, ecology and environmental policy at Johns Hopkins. And um, she was very concerned and um, very willing to help. And just at that point, um, where I had really felt an ordinance at our town level was the way to proceed, um, but couldn't imagine having the time to do the research mm-hmm. or the drafting, um, she came and, and offered her help. And I think she may have been and may be still is a little surprised that we said, well, <laughs> could, could you research and draft this thing? Mm-hmm. So um, that began the drafting process um, and the um, the model really came for it because in different towns in Maine um, and starting in rural Pennsylvania, a group called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund um, realized that asserting community self-governance was um, the only way to keep corporate agriculture, um, and in that case in Pennsylvania, keeping um, hog CAFOs out of their communities because corporations do have... Um, at the moment, constitutionally protected rights of individuals, the communities at public hearings and at the state and legislative levels really didn't have rights to keep them out unless they asserted their um, community self-governance. So um, in in Maine, there are some model ordinances in um, the towns of Shapley and Newfield that particularly were keeping Nestle from drilling their water and selling it away from their towns for a profit. Um, And we have... Um, consulted with CELDEF along the way, um, but have taken the ordinance in, in a slightly different direction as the pressures that come through the agencies from the corporations um, are, are really different in the farming world, where um, in the case of the environmental world, they're really, um, the corporate pressures and the corporate power says deregulate. Um, and in the farming world, it's a kind of going back to this this period when the Grange was founded, um, it's really the, the the pressure to regulate more and thus wipe out the bottom rung. So um, that that's why we took that particular um, direction. But the the ordinance um, model does originally come from Zelda. Mm-hmm. And Maine has a long history of what's called home rule. So yes. um, there's a kind yes. of consistency with what you're proposing and how Maine has co- governed itself um, for. A couple hundred years, probably. absolutely right. right. Jason, I want to bring you into the conversation. Part of the the, the um, reason that Heather um, obviously got interested in this issue was because someone was saying, "Well, maybe your food 
handling practices weren't safe in some way. They weren't according to regulation. Could you just remind us what we all need to know about um, basic um, uh, taking care of food that we're either um, uh, uh, buying, preparing, you know, through the, through the whole process until we eat it? That's a big thing. Yeah, I, that's that, a big that's question. Big question. My eyebrows just raised. Break break it down into what, what and 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 we also talked about um, where, where people said, well, what about church suppers too? So there's there's some basic things that we all need to keep in mind without talking about the regulations because we don't have someone here who's a regulator, so we won't go too too far into that. But some of the basic practical information that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, I think the uh, the foundation of any food processing, whether you're talking about. Um, small farm processing or, you know, large corporate processing is sanitation. Mm -hmm. When something goes wrong, when there's a, an outbreak or, or something like that, it usually comes down to sanitation. Whether it be personnel or, or, or private sanitation amongst employees, um, the sanitation of where something is slaughtered or processed, um, or the facility itself. I think it all comes down to sanitation. Everything else builds off of that. So that's where you need to start. Um, this is simple things like making sure, you know, everyone who is doing any food handling washes their hands. Mm. And this is both um, when you're talking about processing or a church, church supper. Mm -hmm. um, when those type of things are thought of, when you make sure you separate things, you know, vegetables and meat and, and processing equipment with those raw and cooked, mm -hmm. um, that's a, an individual, you know, like, again, small processor and also a large corporation. They have to all think about the same thing. Just different scales. So, like for instance, at home, when I'm using my cutting board to um, get the chicken ready to go into the into the pot, I shouldn't use that same cutting board for the vegetables I'm yeah. putting together in the same pot w w without yeah. without really cleaning that. Absolutely, I, you know, it's they always say you know separate um, your raw from your cooked and so forth, and that's just really uh, I guess another hurdle. And uh, the way the way I say that is in um, food processing, you want to incorporate as many hurdles for foodborne illness to occur. Hmm. Basically meaning, you know, um, if you're, you make sure you clean everything, but you also separate things, there's two different hurdles that this microbe or whatever that causes hmm. this foodborne illness is going to have to jump over in order to get you sick. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, things like that and um, making sure that you have, you know, dedicated utensils if you're doing a lot of food preparation for, for different items. Mm -hmm. You know, even something as simple as separating chicken, and, and beef and then fish and stuff like mm -hmm. that So because mm -hmm. they all have different organisms that are associated with them. Mm -hmm. So kind of you look at this as an educational process. Absolutely. Um, that um, people don't come into the world knowing these things. There may be some, some taboos that are based in, in practical knowledge that we've gained over the centuries, but day to day we might have forgotten those things. Um, so you're trying to help people um, remember them. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Or learn them for the first time right. in some right. aspects. Right, right. Yeah. As, as um, you think about um, the, the things like church suppers, um, are there particular concerns that um, you would kind of say, okay, when you're planning a church supper or community supper, think about these five things or these three things? Sure. Well, sanitation, as we say, is one. Mm -hmm. uh, making sure people wash their hands, things of that nature, um, that you're working with clean substrates, but also planning out the timing. And what I mean by that is if you're going to cook something ahead of time, make sure it doesn't sit out for hours. Mm-hmm. We always say that the big no-nos are the uh, the mayonnaise salads. Mm -hmm. Those are our the problems where we have a, a lot of issues with foodborne illness because people think that just because the mayonnaise was from a jar on the shelf that it could continue to be a shelf-stable product, mm -hmm. and it's not the case. So making sure that you know you you heat up things and serve them right away. Um, usually have about a two-hour window with most items that need to be refrigerated on a normal um, 
you know, 70, 80 degree day, but on the warmer days, you have about an hour. Mm. Mm. So those are, those are the, I think the two really big ones. Mm-hmm. And then so san- sanitation and then what the, the other is, is serving foods when they're supposed to be yeah, served. And then refrigerating foods or making sure for, you know, foods that need to be hot, they need to stay hot and foods that need to be refrigerated need to stay refrigerated. Mm. Um, and so those, just thinking of those little things and always having a couple of thermometers located, you know, to take the temperature of foods is not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. It'll cost a couple of dollars and it could save someone from being really sick. Mm-hmm. Heather, as you, you and your husband got started in, in um, the farm operation, how did you learn about kind of basic food s- issues and food safety? Well, m- my mom knew most of those <laughs> <things>. <laughs> Right. Um, so I guess, um, you know, maybe some of us do still have that as common sense. Mm. But um, mm. in, in terms of farming, um, we certainly have gone to um, workshops, grass, mm-hmm. um, grass farmer conferences, dairy workshops, and, and things of that nature. But we learn an awful lot by the farmers that are still alive and well in our community. Right. Um, like I say, we did buy milk from a farm for nine years and often sat, made sure we had a good hour or more to mm-hmm. sit and visit with, with the farmers because they were, they became dear friends of ours um, and certainly learn a lot that way. Um, and then when we did buy our cow, well, they were right down the road and we could ask them, well, what, what detergent do you use and, and what, you know, what's your water heater set at and, and, and all sorts of details. And, um, and there's another farm down the direction, down the road the other way. And, um, she also had a, the same kind of scale of farm and dairy cow operation. So um, there, there's all sorts of mm. really tried and true information out there mm-hmm. that is based, again, through relationships. Right. And, and Ruth, um, as, as you, th- you know, have thought about um, the, the larger issues of the food ordinance and, and kind of connecting producers and, and consumers, um, what were some of the questions that people asked you, you know, when you said, I, I think we need to be thinking about these issues, the holistic issues of our local food system and perhaps a local food and ordinance. What were some of the questions that people asked you? Well, I think um, at the Grange, we have always been very clear that uh, we want to support our neighbors. Mm. Um, and that we want to be free to um, to do that. We want to be free to buy food from the farm up the road. And in conversations about what our food system should look like, um, we've had these discussions about well, what's what's really the right w- way to um, to move forward. And I I think a key that I want to bring up is that. Um, we're talking about um, food that's produced by our neighbors and sold locally within, um, in some cases within five miles, but in many cases certainly within 20 miles. And I think it's really true that the way to encourage a safe local food supply is to encourage the farmers and their customers to look each other in the eye, mm-hmm. to shake hands, and to take a walk around the farm. Um, they take a walk around the farm, they talk about what they smell, they talk about what they see, they talk about what they hear, and we wanna build that relationship because as soon as you can do that, um, as soon as a customer and a farmer can do that, they build trust and um, we believe that citizens in our community and this may not be true for every community. I want to stress that. Mm. We 
we are very lucky. Um, in our community, the Grange is quite confident that our citizens and our farmers um, can work with each other, look each other in the eye, educate each other about what we need to know to make informed decisions about what we want to eat and where we want to buy it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and as you um, think about that connection, um, if you were a, a, a farmer or you were a consumer, um, what would be the logical end of that, that conversation? Let's, let's say you smell something when you're walking around the farm. How would you imagine that conversation to go so that you as a consumer understood that that smell was related to XYZ process and, and, and yet the food was still safe? Absolutely. Well, I think it's just a matter of, it's hard for me to answer this because I've been on both sides sure. of this. I've been both the producer and, okay. the, and the customer, right. so forgive me if I need to think Slip, about right. this for sure. a moment. Um, I think we're all very disconnected from where our food comes from, mm -hmm. even those of us even even customers and consumers like myself, where I buy so much of my food locally, mm -hmm. you know, I'm no longer producing it myself, and therefore I'm I'm somewhat removed from the processes. So, I think part of it for most people is um, getting exposed to what it really means to grow our own food, what it looks like when mm -hmm. you pull a carrot out of the garden and right. there's still dirt on it. Right. Or, oh my God, what's that thing? Well, it's celeriac root. It's <laughs> really ugly. Um, <laughs> and most people have never seen it before or thought about how to cook with it. Um, so when you start walking around the farm, you see new products that you may never have seen before. You see the animals out on pasture. Um, you get to look into the barn. You get to watch um, milking and see how the pails are cleaned mm -hmm. and how the milk is handled. And um, you get to um, watch how the animals are behaving and how calm they are. And there are just so many things about a, a, a local scale farm that are so eye-opening and so phenomenally beautiful that, you know, I feel really lucky to mm -hmm. know where m almost all of my food comes from. Mm -hmm. And I have a chance to walk around and ask questions and find out, well, what do they do with the manure? And what do they do about pest issues? And what do they do when there's a, a problem with one of the animals? And... I, it, like I said before, it just really builds a level of trust. Right, and, and it suggests that um, the consumer has to take as much responsibility as the producer in Absolutely. asking those questions. And so that's where folks like Jason come in or you know, other, other sources of information so that consumers get to ask those kinds of questions about, well, how is this produced and what safety do, do um, you take and what safety do I need to take? What precautions do I need to take in, in making sure that when I put my food on the table, it's safe for my family to eat? Yeah. Well, let's just remind our listeners that you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We have some guests in the studio who are helping with us with the topic of a local food ordinance for the Blue Hill Peninsula and beyond, and we're going to get to the beyond part in just a moment. Um, Heather Redberg, Retberg is with us from Quills End Farm in Penobscot. Ruth Sullivan is uh, from the Halcyon Grange of North Blue Hill. 
and Jason Bolton is a food safety educator with University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Um, we're going to open up our phone lines in, in a little while. Um, perhaps you have questions or comments or suggestions um, to help us with this topic about a local food ordinance. But right now we're going to go to State Representative Walter Comiega from Deer Isle. And uh, Walter, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Hi, how you doing? Good. We, we find, we're, are we finding you in Augusta this morning? No, actually, I'm in Sunshine at the Haystack School uh, doing my other job, which is a carpenter. Oh, great. So I'm, I'm sitting on the deck in the sun, got a water view. Uh, yeah, a lot better than being in Augusta. Pretty good, pretty good. Well, Walter, you've been following the, um, the local food issue um, both as a candidate uh, for the legislature and now as um, the representative for District 36. Is that right? Yep. Tell us a little bit about um, the, the uh, legislation that you've proposed and how it relates to these local food ordinances that are being proposed in the Blue Hill Peninsula area. Well, I put in two bills that relate to it. Um, we had public hearings on them earlier this week, last Tuesday. Uh, one is LD 330, which is... The, is very similar in wording to the local food ordinance. Um, it just applies it to uh, state law. Uh, and then the other bill is LD-366, which contains more strict raw milk and permits uh, uh, direct sales of raw milk by an unlike producer to directly to consumers. So basically, the legislation they're proposing in both cases is is really meant to back up what what's happening at the local level. Yes, right. Yep, and then back off a little bit on some of the state regulations. Mm -hmm. And what's been the reaction? You said you had hearings um, this last week, I believe. Um, Heather, were you at those those hearings? Right. Yeah, yeah. I was. So, uh, Walter, uh, tell us a little bit about what you learned in those those hearings. Well, I learned that. There's a lot of people on both sides and in the middle, mm -hmm. um, and and it's it's unfortunate that we're in a, a part of my testimony was on one of the bills was that when you have small farms pitted against smaller farms, big agriculture wins, and we do have a, a a little bit of that. I mean, there are there's some fear amongst. You know what for Maine is a, is a medium-sized farm, but for the, anywhere else in the country is a, still a tiny farm. You know, somebody with maybe forty cows or something um, are afraid that if there are smaller producers that are unregulated, it could cause uh, uh, and somebody gets sick, uh, it, it could cause a backlash that will affect negatively affect their business. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing we thought is that the there are a ton of regulations uh, that uh, it's, it's really hard to get a, get a handle on, really, how much regulation there is. And as Heather mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, it's not just the regulation, but how regulations are interpreted. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is uh, uh, the, the Agriculture Committee is, is very interesting. I mean, we've got some, some people there, Peter Edgecombe, I believe in his 70s, he's the co-chair of the committees from Caribou. And uh, he mentioned that up until he went to college, he had never tasted cold milk. Mm. Yep. You know, he grew up on a dairy farm, milked cows himself, and they would drink 
warm, drink the milk warm. And once it was cooled and skimmed, they, they fed the skim milk to the pigs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, and he says, how am I still alive? <laughs> this is so dangerous. Well, it, it, it relates to the, 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 uh, some of the comments earlier in our program that a lot of knowledge is passed on generation to generation, a lot of uh, information. And um, so that those old um, kind of uh, techniques have been kind of obscured by um, the pace of modern life and the fact that we usually aren't drinking milk that's produced locally. We're drinking milk that's produced somewhere else and, and shipped to us. So we don't have a, a, that relationship that Ruth Sullivan was talking about with our local food or our local farmer or our lo- local producer. Um, so, Walter, um, what, what's the next steps in, in these uh, two bills? What, what will be happening um, next? Well, there's a work session scheduled for uh, next Thursday, the 31st. And what does that mean? What does a work session mean? Um, that's where the committee they'll consider amendments. They'll consider they'll consider the bills. I mean, the work session is where the work happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the committee will decide ultimately if it's going to uh, send it to the floor of the house or kill it. And if they send it to the floor, um, a lot depends on their vote is. Um, if they were say to to uh, vote ought not to pass or ought to pass unanimously, uh, the a bill goes to the floor on a consent calendar, and uh, not always, but typically things that are are voted ought to pass unanimously from a committee pass. Right, because the other other members of the legislature kind of trust the work of the committee to deliver the best product. They do. Right. And, uh, and by the same token, anything that's voted unanimously ought not to pass. But going right. further, that's right. the end. Yeah. Bill dies. So oh. do you sense that um, there may be some changes to um, either of these bills as, as they um, make their way through the work session and before um, coming to a, a floor vote? Yes. Uh, I think the committee, you know, they heard a lot of concerns um, at the public hearing. They're going to want to address at least some of them, um, and I'm, this is where the tough part for me is. I have expressed a desire to submit some amendments, and and the committee seemed to think those the amendments I spoke of were suitable. Um, I don't know if they go far enough to answer all the concerns. Uh, I'm you know I'm going to propose language, and we'll. See See what happens. It's really the great unknown now. Is um, you know, do I compromise enough to? By compromise, I guess I mean weaken the bills enough to make sure they get passed and we get somewhere, or do I kind of stick to my guns and and risk not getting anything done? <laughs> right. Well, as someone said to me last week, um, they're quoting someone else. It may have been Will Rogers. Something about um, the, the legislature is a little bit like making sausage, and it's not a pretty sight. Oh. Yeah, that's probably an understatement. <laughs> so, um, if if people are interested in these two bills, um, they could contact you if if you're uh, um, um, especially in your district, but their own legislators. Um, they can attend the work session, I believe, but they can't participate in the work session. Is that right? That's right. I mean, the the committee. There will be a lot of people there who will <laughs> participate at the invitation of the committee. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, 
you know, I mean, I'll be there, and they'll probably ask me to speak on my amendments, uh, I hope. And, uh, and I imagine the gentleman, Al Prince from the QAR, will be there to, to answer questions, and uh, probably a few other people that were at the work session will be there. Great. So um, keep keep tabs with that. Um, anything um, that you'd like to say? Why why did you um, why did you sponsor these these bills? Um, what was what was behind them for you? Uh, for me, it's mostly uh, and me and people in my district. It's mostly as a consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the district that I represent. There's not a lot of farms there. Mm. It's a lot of rock. It's a lot of fishermen. <laughs> and a lot of rock. It's mm-hmm. really hard to farm in Stonington. I mean, there are a couple of people that that do. Um, as a guy who makes some wonderful goat cheese down there, but uh, it's not. And you know, goats don't—they like grass, but they don't mind rocks either to walk around on. Um, but yeah, it's—it's it's more as a consumer. And most of my constituents, people that I talk to, campaigning, because um, they weren't my constituents at the time, but they were very interested. And this was one of the, the things that I had. Uh, kind of had in mind to introduce the legislation last summer. And uh, people were very interested in, in local food. It's very popular. Um, you know, the Coolsland Farm delivers to Deer Isle. Um, there's a hugely popular farmer's market in Stonington. There are farmer's markets in other parts of, of the district that are very popular. So Great. Well, thanks for taking time um, from, I, I guess you're... you're, you're uh, carpentering today rather than legislating and I'm not going to ask you which is more satisfying. You'll you'll um, discover that over your career. But thanks so much for being with us this All morning. Right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for your time and uh, happy I could participate. Great. State Representative Walter Comiega from uh, Deer Isle speaking to us on Talk of the Towns. We're talking about a local food ordinance. We'll open up our phone lines um, now if you've got questions or comments or actually want to share your experience around um, the need for a f- local food ordinance um, give us a call, 469-0500 locally or 1-866-625-9378, and you can participate um, in Talk of the Towns. So we talk about our local food ordinance. Go ahead. Um, we have a caller. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. I've been looking forward to this program. Chemical companies have become the de facto health department in this country. Corporate government paints with a broad brush. What's good for decoster farms is good for everyone. They call it food safety, but the real agenda is eliminating any threat to industrial control over all food. Part of the problem is there's no distinction in the debate between different types of contamination. To industry, contamination is biological, E. coli, salmonella, both fostered by large operations, which then use poisons to kill microorganisms. To small farmers, contamination means poisons, oils, metals, radioactivity, GMOs. No one wants biological contamination, but chemical contamination is fast becoming mandatory, intended to push organic methods out of our food future. Can local ordinances to protect citizens' right to pure food prevail against corporate government. Thanks so much for running this show. Okay, thanks for your comments this morning. Um, well, let's take another call, and then we'll uh, have some discussion among our guests. Um, tell us the, your name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Um, first of all, I'm Laura from Penobscot, and I'm calling. I have two comments, and also thank you so much for this opportunity to 
remind everyone about the 500,000 chickens that were recalled uh, a couple of years ago, um, which was, um, from my perspective, the way they were treated, the salmonella breakout. And then the other one that I would like to mention is about the GMO labeling laws that we have, which are non-existent, that if our government is so concerned with our safety, then why do we not have labeling laws that allow us to make informed choices about genetic modified organisms? It's more about a copyright than it is about food safety or feeding the world, because if these organizations were about feeding the world, then we wouldn't have starvation. But it's more about owning food. And so what's happening with these small farmers is that it's, um, you know, it's a, a David and Goliath from my perspective. And so any comments that can be made over either one, the GMO or the egg recall, would be welcomed. And thanks again for the comments. Okay, thanks for your call this morning. Um, Heather, some, some reaction or, or comments? Yeah, well, just on the, on the labeling thing, I think that, um, you know, just tying into um, Representative Kamiega's comments about compromise once these bills go forward, um, where absolutely we think that um, the full disclosure is very important. People should know if they're buying food from a farmer who does not hold a license with the state. But I would so strongly object to anything that would... Um, um, require a small farmer to put a warning label on their food when um, Monsanto, as this caller has mentioned, um, has actually sued the government over this and, um, again, claiming the um, First Amendment rights that they have as a corporation, they said they have the right to not speak. Um, those aren't rights that small farmers are going to sue to gain, um, but I do believe that we should not be um, legislated to to warn people about being able to eat real food. Mm. Um, Jason, I noticed that in the, when the first caller was talking about that corporations are only concerned with one kind of, of uh, um, contaminant, you had your, your eyebrows raised, so I want to invite you to, to uh, um, give some feedback as well. Yeah, um, <clears throat> when we talk about the three major issues that could, could occur with food safety, I mean, microbiological is the predominant one. But there are chemical safeties. I mean, an example of this is looking at um, red tide or sexy toxin that's found in, you know, shellfish. I mean, that's a chemical toxin that people are concerned with. I understand the caller definitely, you know, the ones you hear about are the E. coli 0157H7, the salmonella, um, listeria. Those are the big ones, and those mm -hmm. are the ones that affect a lot of people. But I have to say at least federal government and state government does look at um, physical hazards too. You know, mm -hmm. it's one of those things built into safety HACCP plans and things that you look at. Um, rocks and stones and, and, and metal particulate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, that, that concept of a HACCP um, a procedure or plan. Would you just let our listeners know what that is and, and who's, who's involved in those kinds of plans? Sure. Uh, there are three, I guess, crops that you have to have a HACCP plan for when you're producing. You have your meat and poultry, you have your seafood, and you have your juice, and that's vegetable and fruit juice. And HACCP stands for just... HACCP, yeah, HACCP stands for Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point. It's basically a way of looking at processing, what's the worst thing that could happen in your processing, and, and being able to look at and control those particular aspects of processing, whether it's talking about heating or cleaning or cooling. Um, the, that's basically what HACCP does. It was originally 
started by Pillsbury, NASA, and Natick Labs in Massachusetts to look at um, safe food for astronauts. Mm, and that's was, interesting. That was adopted in the, the mid-90s. Uh -huh. So um, part of your work and, and some of your colleagues mm -hmm. is to help people understand what that process lo would yeah. look like and how they could um, guard against those concerns. To break it down so it's not such a scary entity, because it's a lot of paperwork. That's what mm -hmm. it comes down to. Mm -hmm. um, and so my job is to come in and say, if you need help, I'm, I'm here to help. I can't write it for you, but I'd be happy to sit down with you sometime and, and work on it. Great. We have a couple of other calls. Um, go ahead and, and uh, first caller, give us your name and where you're calling from and go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. This is Michael from Stonington. Um, good morning, Heather. Good morning, um, Michael. I, uh, well, I think there's a, there's a double irony here, which is really palpable. Um, you know, most of America's food stuff is produced from and by agribusiness, and um, they have basically a mass track record, which is less than enviable, to put it, you know, lightly. 1.8 million pounds of hamburger recalled, spinach recalled, eggs recalled. I mean, it, it's, it's the stuff of, of legend. And, and, uh, and so, and they are, of course, all heavily regulated. Um, they are actually besotted with regulations. And, um, and so the way that uh, a lot of families like ours seek to to ameliorate the what we perceive as a threat from from this is um, several ways we grow our own garden but the other thing is we go and buy a lot of our food stuff from small farms like um, like uh, Quills End Farm and and uh, and King Hill Farm in Penobscot and uh, and and so what's happening is that they are trying we, we buy from them because we feel safe buying from them I, I mean I've never told this to Heather directly, but I, I think we feel that Heather and Phil and, and Dennis and Joe are a, a part of our extended family. We, we know them by name. You know, we meet their kids. We, uh, um, I, I, the way I feel is that, that Heather would no more sell less tainted food than she'd give her own kids tainted food. And so there's an implicit trust here that we have as producer and consumer, which, which is also palpable. And, um, and we feel we are relieved then from the strain of not knowing um, whether we're buying our hamburger from, from someone 3,000 miles away who produces it at, at 25,000 pounds at a time and, and, and doesn't really care in a lot of cases where, where it goes or who eats it or what kind of shape it's in. And so to try and levy these regulations that these sloppy agribusiness people are, uh, operate on onto the small farms that we trust with, with you know with our food is it's just it's doubly absurd it's absolutely doubly absurd these people are selling to their neighbors same thing with Grange suppers I mean you, you, the Grange or your local church they, they can't have a supper feeling all feeding all the people they live next door to and poison them the whole thing is it's preposterous um, it's it's government regulation totally out of control and uh, we you know we we need to get get a handle on this and uh, and put this put this thing back in perspective. And, okay. Uh, thank you very much for having this show. I'll, I'll let the next caller on and uh, and uh, keep at it, Heather. <laughs> Thanks, Th Michael. We're we're just trying to maintain the, the the sense of the proper fitness of things. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for that call. We have one more. Um, go ahead with your question or comment. If you'd give us your name and where you're calling from, that helps. Thanks. Uh, hi, yeah, this is David. Uh, I'm calling from Brooklyn. I'm happy to have been able to vote for Walter, and um, I really support the work he's doing. Uh, I, 
I'd like to, um, and in addition to the work that Quilton is doing, and folks are bringing this. I, I think we're, we'll um, hope that we can um, hear from that caller another time. Thanks very much for trying. Four six nine zero five zero zero or one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Well, p- people are certainly interested in the, in the topic. Um, uh, the local food and ordinance is going to Blue Hill on April second. Is that right? Um, and uh, and you, you, you've mentioned that two other towns have already voted in support? Right, both in Sedgwick and okay. Scott. Okay. And um, where would you like this to go? <laughs> um, if it's successful in these several towns, how would you like to take this, this forward? Well, um, I certainly did not get into this work because I was an activist looking for a cause and right. um, um, certainly wouldn't consider myself that otherwise. But um, I, I wouldn't like to take it any farther. I, I would love it if people can adopt this work and, and look at the laws in, in their own municipalities and their own states and be able to protect their own regional food systems. Um, so where we'd like it to go is that, that we can continue to operate in our own communities and um, and have a healthy food system that that isn't going to be um, obliterated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- if, you, if you've provided the um, one, another model You'd like people to kind of look at that model and see if it works for them. Well, we're we're finding that that's what's happening. We yeah. really have heard yeah. from people from Texas to Tennessee to California that okay. are um, are hopeful that this might give them a way forward. And um, certainly, that's uh, a daunting work that may lay ahead. Um, sure. But um, we yeah we'd hope that they would do the research and, and be able to find ways to to take it forward in their own yeah. places. And Jason, you know, the, uh, the parallel track here is good information. Um, making sure that um, producers and consumers have good information. Some of it comes through trust, and, and as one caller said, we know these folks, and we know they're going to do the best we can. How do we get make, make sure that people get good information throughout the process? Well, Cooperative Extension is here for help. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the big things. And, um, you know, the Department of Ag, I work with them a lot, and whenever I have questions or I have a producer that I'm working with that has a question, it's, they're just a phone call away. And so they've been really, really uh, approachable. Mm-hmm. And I think they want that. They want, um, when you have questions and concerns, that them not to be a scary entity. Mm-hmm. That they're there to help. Mm-hmm. And they're just trying to do their job when it comes down to it. Right. And so those listening who outside of Hancock County, um, they can go to their local extension offices and, and they can then find you because you're a statewide resource. Yeah, correct. You can always give me a call once you find my cell phone number. <laughs> Um, so, and then, uh, Ruth, uh, what, what, is your, what are your hopes um, as a Grange member, um, both for the future of the Grange and, and for these kinds of issues? Well, as I've said, the Grange is very supportive of this ordinance, um, and we expect, uh, uh, if it passes, we hope it will pass in Blue Hill, um, we expect a couple of things to come out of it. We expect there to be increased home businesses and economic opportunities for families in our community that want to be able to afford to raise their children here. Um, We expect a growing number of young farmers to be able to uh, get on the land or stay on the land as they're able to diversify. Um, And we expect and hope that the Grange continues to grow and be a, a vibrant part of a growing community dialogue. Um, It's really 
one of the most exciting things about this ordinance, it's gotten our community talking. Mm -hmm. It's gotten our Grange talking. It's gotten our um, older Grange population talking with the younger farmers on the land. And there have been some discussions about diversification and sustainability and local, local marketing um, that have been really exciting. So we hope that this gives our community a sense of ownership over these food issues and um, continues to create vibrant dialogue um, that's one of the most exciting things to come out of this. Mm. And I would applaud all of you for, for helping people understand that this is a conversation. And we're trying to have these conversations throughout at our, our local um, kitchen tables, in our grange halls, in our town halls, and in education centers. We're, we're all trying to work on these kinds of issues. So thanks for being part of it here on Talk of the Towns. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests um, this morning, Heather Retberg of Quills End Farm in Penobscot, Ruth Sullivan from Halcyon Grange in North Blue Hill, Jason Bolton, who's a food safety educator with Cooperative Extension, and Representative Walter Kumiega from District 36 um, down in, in uh, Stonington Deer Isle. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks to our underwriters, Joel Mann for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.